Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm kind of supposed to be dead. So if I end up not being in a massive rush to write my second novel, I think that's reasonably understandable. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. I am so delighted to have Robert Webb on Write Off today. His memoir, How Not to Be a Boy, is one of my favourite books, a raw and insightful look at Robert's background, what I think we would now call toxic masculinity and its ripple effects throughout childhood and adulthood, and the death of his mother when he was 17. Robert has also written a terrific novel, Come Again, which is about a woman grieving for her late husband who suddenly finds herself back in time at university on the day she meets him. Robert is, of course, an actor and comedian as well as a writer, and he is probably best known as the star of Peep Show, which he worked on with David Mitchell for 12 years. The duo who met at university had their big break in their late 20s when they joined a BBC writing team and Peep Show came a few years later. But before that, they worked for years sketch writing and being rejected all over the place, as most freelancers are. I love talking to Rob about how during that time he tried to reconcile himself to not making it big and also how difficult it is writing a second novel when the idea for the first one arrived like a lightning bolt. I did not get a chance to ask Rob about being a booker judge this year because it hadn't been announced when we spoke, but he is one, so look out for that. Just by the by, in this interview, I refer to a Hemingway quote. After the interview, I checked this and it is in fact commonly misattributed to him. Hemingway apparently did not say, write drunk, edit sober, and it's probably also very bad advice, so let's ignore it anyway. Okay, let's listen to Rob. Yes, I was freakishly young. I was about 13, I think. And I was um, I was watching... I mean, I loved all the, 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 the stuff that we talk about these days as being the classics, that, you know, the, 40, the repeats of 40 Towers and the young ones. I loved that. But it, it was actually a, a long-forgotten uh, sitcom that was the, the sort of moment that I thought, 
ooh, could I do that? And it was uh, a thing called Home Sweet Home, starring the very young Martin Clunes. And it was a very BBC One, very trad family sitcom. And I'd just been in uh, a play at school and um, I'd got the sort of lead part by accident because the person who wrote it uh, had suddenly got appendicitis. And I stepped into with far-reaching consequences for me. Um, but Paul was fine, his appendix uh that was all fine um so I didn't you know nobody had to die in order for me to have my start in acting but uh I was I'd just done that and I'd uh, I'd got some laughs and I remember the feeling of control I, I suppose is the first I mean it's nice to <clears throat> it's nice to be it's nice to inspire joy obviously that's the, the obvious thing but but actually being able to time laughs and being able to you know, knowing that the way that you cross your leg at this point or the way that you inflect this word at this point is going to make a difference to how this audience reacts. Um, that wasn't immediately obvious in this performance when I was 13. But um, but that kind of feeling, yes, I liked the look of that. And then I was watching Martin Clunes and I thought, what is, what is this young man doing that I couldn't do? Uh, I thought to myself, all of 13. So um, the idea that you could do that and get paid for it and that that could be your job, um, was very exciting and then very shortly after that uh, I started writing as well I started writing um, sort of sketches and stuff that we would do um, I would make my friends take all of the non-funny parts uh, and I would have the funny parts in sort of reviews basically um, although I didn't know it was called that but sketch shows that we would do at the end of term and we charged we charged 10p and most of the school would turn up and see it and nominally it was for team building and uh, raising money for charity but essentially it was for me to show off and I was sort of indulged in that by um, a couple of um, excellent teachers so it was um yeah it all it all started there really the writing and the acting at the same time you were always focused on comedy it sounds like did you have any intention at that point of writing anything like a novel I mean you write in your diary in your memoir you write a fair bit in your diary quite dramatically mm. at points mm, yeah. um in the way one does as a teenager I suppose but um yeah it was it was a novel you were reading a lot at that time I know it was a novel on your mind at all it was always sort of in the background. I mean, it's funny, when I came to write the my first novel, what I grandly call my first novel, so far my only novel, but let's just just to keep me on my toes, my first novel come again. When I came to that, it was it was pleasing actually to remember that at primary school I'd excelled at creative writing. There was a lesson during the week called creative writing. And uh, and again, you're right. It's it was it was still very focused on comedy, and I was doing it because I wanted to make my friends laugh. Um, but it was pleasing to me that it wasn't like going from comedy script writing to writing a novel wasn't so much this big step into the unknown that it was a kind of a circling back in that I started with stories really that I've been writing stories before I was writing sort of stuff at the stage so I think humans like that they like the idea that we're you know we're going in circles and that we're you know we've done this thing before and this is now closing some uh arc some arc uh anyway um yeah so I so I I'd, I'd always enjoyed writing stories but um for a long time the stage stuff and then radio and TV stuff kind of overtook that simply because that's where that's just where my focus was. But I but I, I think a novel had always been sort of simmering in the background. Yeah, and so so let's talk about that that comedy stuff then. Obviously, you met David Mitchell at university at Cambridge Footlights and yeah. went on to write with him and perform with him. 
in the email you sent me about some of the rejections you'd experienced before we recorded this podcast, you mentioned both submitting comedy with David to the BBC in various places and having rejected. And you also mentioned your, and I quote, insanely large ego. I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'd said that about you, but that is uh, (laughs) how you refer to it yourself. Um, So let's talk about that a little bit. You were submitting, being rejected, and you were horribly arrogant at the same time. Tell, tell me I, about that. I certainly was. Well, it was it was the, it was this sort of uh, horrifying step from uh, my third year at Cambridge, where you know I was vice president of Footlights and I was doing shows with uh, and David was in his second year at the time, and I started working with him. We were doing two man shows, and I was in the, all three Footlight shows, and I starred in two of them. I directed the other one. I had my own column in Varsity, the student newspaper. It was all going you know, hilariously, you know, I was really quite grand. And in that, in that very small pond, um, sort of famous. And then you go from that to living in the flat above Iceland in Swiss cottage. And, you know, you're living on pot noodle and toast and you uh, usher at the lyric, you're an usher at a theatre coping with bad tempered middle-class theatre goers who are very cross that you won't let them uh, walk into the show when they're 10 minutes late, all of that. Um, and just being utterly anonymous and just starting from from scratch again so it was it was quite a it was a bump uh, and I you know I had a big face full of humble pie and I was sort of going along to weekending so weekending was this uh, radio four topical show that ran for many many years and it was one of the few sort of access shows you could be nobody and just turn up with some sketches and I remember uh, submitting I think about five sketches uh, the first week that I that I tried it and they were all sent back and I just just I just kind of walked away in disgust and never never submitted any sketches ever again because it was a kind of uh, I, I'd gone to Cambridge to sort of meet other people to try and meet other people who thought they were funny to find out whether I was funny or not and I decided to my satisfaction yes I was <laughs> and uh <laughs> And we were all quite, and we were quite arrogant. I, I think it's a sort of self-preservation thing as well, though. Um, you, you kind of, uh, you build these defenses, and I think I did that in, in, in other ways, and not just professionally as well. That you, you know, some that's how your insecurity comes out sometimes. In that, you know, well, if this person doesn't understand me, then it just goes to show what an idiot they are. And it was a bit like that with, um, with also in my defense sometimes when you're starting out you won't necessarily be working with the with Kubrick you know you 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 know the person who's <laughs> not to have a go at whoever was script editing weekending at that time uh, and who missed my obvious genius but um you know I, I, I'm giving my I'm giving myself a pass there because I think the sketches I have no idea if I read those sketches now they might be absolutely dreadful because I knew nothing about uh writing radio comedy um but i but anyway i didn't um i didn't try that again and then once i was working with once david graduated uh and we were doing stuff together and uh we got an agent and she got us meetings with producers at the bbc and elsewhere and we started writing for other people's sketch shows um and we sort of became known within the business way before we were known anywhere else and so we were we got a thing called a first look deal with the BBC, which is where they gave us some money for which we were extremely grateful. 
to try and pilot various projects like write a sitcom pilot or write write on other people's shows. And so we would do things like that, things that were amazingly complicated to explain to my grandfather, for example. He was kind of go, what are you up to at the moment, Rob? And I was like, well, it's a thing called... So, and I'd sort of waffle like this for a while, and then he would go, well, let's hope some good comes out of that. And I, we'd agree that we, we both <laughs> hoped that some good would come out of that. But we were sort of subsisting like that for years and stuff that we were we were submitting to broadcasters uh which in retrospect i can i can kind of see their point that they were never going to make these fantastically expensive looking sitcoms and comedy shows on with these two totally unknown people in them but we were we were sort of doing that and getting increasingly scared basically that this was just never going to happen we were kind of working as comedy writers jobbing comedy writers writing for uh, other people's sketches like Armstrong and Miller writing the links on the Jack Doherty show stuff like that and so we were making a living but it it, it kind of looked like it wasn't going to sort of capital H happen uh, and, and of course really lots of people lots of people do live creative lives like that where they yeah, work absolutely. they can earn yeah. money but they don't you know they don't it doesn't well it happens but it doesn't happen with a capital yeah. H um, yeah. when you thought that was going to be the case for you what did that feel like? It was, I like to think that because it was so sort of gradual and we never had that kind of, um, we never had an instant thing. So this is like 95, Peep Show doesn't come along till 2003. So this is a reasonable, you know, sort of apprenticeship, if you like. And, uh, you know, you get time, you, you've got time to get used to the idea that you might be a bit disappointed and that actually this is that this is the life and you don't have to be famous and you don't have to you know be the be all and end all and actually earning money from writing is great isn't it because you know uh it, it is and I certainly wasn't qualified to do anything else at that point so um so I, we were sort of lowering our uh, sort of adjusting our our horizons I suppose and um uh, and then after it, it it kind of happens, you you realise that, you know, success has its own, you know, it, it can be a bit of a double edged thing itself. But obviously, you know, given the choice, <laughs> it was it was better after it started working out for us than it than it was before. But yeah, it was like that for quite a long time. But I think we were I think we were reconciling ourselves to that. Were you able to enjoy the writing? And obviously, particularly given that it's funny writing, are you yeah. able to sit there in moments of deflation and rejection and you know bounce around jokes with your writing partner and and kind of enjoy it all or does it start it, to feel very difficult it varied depending on depending on the job and depending on the on the day really I mean if we were writing sketches uh for someone who we knew was going to send back a load of notes that didn't make any sense and that were you know we we would literally sometimes you know, for our own private amusement, we would call the document of the second draft worse. We would go the same title <laughs> and then brackets worse and hopefully remember to change it back again before we submit it to the whoever it was. Um, so that, that's such a risky game. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, can't, I think I think I would have been at the keyboard. David would never have done that. That would have been me. Um, uh, so it, it sort of depended a, a lot of the time. Yes, when we sort of got into the flow of, by the time we were writing our own show, for example, or writing stuff that we knew we were going to perform, and there was a thing called Bruiser where we knew we were going to be in it, and uh, we got quite a good system where we would uh, we would meet in the evening and we would 
uh, turn up at the pub with a couple of notebooks and we would try and emerge uh, uh, basically vertical by the end of the night with four or five decent ideas for sketches and then write them up the following afternoon. Uh, we weren't morning writers uh, at that point. Um, so, and so we would, you know, I would turn up at David's house. We would have a very long cup of tea watching Buffy or Morse or whatever happened to, or the snooker or whatever happened to be on. Not much got done during crucible fortnight i can tell you that because we just found the commentators hilarious more than we love <laughs> more than we love the snooker anyway uh we would go up and then at one point you know one of us would wearily say to the other one shall we do a bit then and we would trudge up to david's bedroom and we would do because we were working together so much uh like we would see each other literally every day the the clock was ticking what by the time we sat down in those chairs we didn't want to be in that room any longer than we had to be so we we became very efficient um and so we would knock off four we would go through a couple of drafts of four or five sketches in three hours and then i go home and if you do that every day you you start you produce a lot of material and and by the time we we were doing our own shows for radio four and then bbc two we were quite practiced in being able to overwrite essentially being able to have enough redundancy that you could get rid of uh, the sketches that you thought were quite good and only record the ones that you thought were very good and so that stood us in in that sort of long apprenticeship if you like um was very handy by the time it did it did all start to uh, pick up I think that's such an interesting word apprenticeship because obviously there is no formal apprenticeship in creativity and most people struggle with that you know the idea that you have to be great straight out the gate and if you're not you'll be binned and won't be able to work but um, maybe in comedy where you start off smaller and you know I, I'm just thinking about compared with say debut novelists mm. not in your case perhaps because you already had a platform by that mm. stage but a lot of debut novelists feel that their books have to be brilliant um, the very first time round, and obviously if they don't sell thousands of copies the first time round, they feel that maybe they won't have that chance in an apprenticeship yeah, um, I mean, it was it was funny because I, because I came at the sort of um, publishing books world from from this weird angle, having established this profile as a performer as much as anything else. It, the the good side of that was, you know, it really helps you to get a book deal. But there again, you know, I was I went to enormous trouble to make sure the proposal for How Not to Be a Boy, which was the first book, was was a lot how can I put this uh, better than it needed to be but it looked like I knew what I was doing and uh, so I wrote the first two chapters and then I wrote another uh, 30 pages uh, outlining what was going to be in the rest of the book and I just wanted to give publishers a very good idea that I I I wanted to give them the firm impression that I knew what I was doing. Uh, and I think that helped me have the idea that I knew what I was doing. That's well. so interesting, because if I'm honest, I because I know that came out. Of, I mean, I think, am I right in thinking you were approached off the back of a New Statesman column for, mm. no? No, no, okay. the, the idea came from me. Uh, and I, right. I sort of, the, the column did go down very well. And that was also called, you know, that was the, basically that column which was called how not to be a boy was if you like the sort of nucleus of the the book that followed but it right. was it wasn't intended as that it was just a a longer than usual and more personal than usual and more memoirish if you like than usual column that I was uh, mm. for the new statesman because I was writing occasionally for them at the time and then uh, I went to my literary agent Ivan Wilkahi and said 
how about a memoir but it's focused on masculinity and gender conditioning in boys and how boys are supposed to be boys and how I found that quite difficult what does that sound like to you and he said he said that sounds great why don't you write some pages and let me have a look and that's how that sort of process started but the the idea came from me really so I mean what I was going to say about you know starting uh, coming to books from the world of tv is that mm. it's it gave it gave me a huge help in terms of profile and in terms of getting a deal on the other hand um I didn't I was sort of it, it added a certain amount of pressure because you were saying you know you don't you know a debut novelist or a debut writer of a memoir uh, you what it felt like to me is you don't get to fuck this up quietly basically so it was <laughs> it was like yeah um it, it has to be it has to be good uh so yeah. that's how I felt about it and I think that's why I gave myself such a head start before before anybody saw it I think that makes sense and I mean I would add here that um I was saying this to you before we started recording but it is such a phenomenal book I mean certainly one of my favorite memoirs of all time oh. if not one of my favorite books of all time that's very it, kind thank you very much for just... it, it really is um I, I just think it's one of the cleverest in most insightful looks at how the idea of what's masculine in a sort of gendered society hurts men as much as it hurts women there's one bit I really really remember where you've just you've you've just written as a teenager you've just written quite a nasty letter to a to a girl um, in the wake of your mother's death and you say and I quote in other words the girl picked up the bill when the boy turned fear and grief into anger and I I just think it's a very very clever way of looking at at what's what encouraging boys to be boys really does to boys and to women and to society in general it's it's a fantastic book if you if you haven't read it people who are listening please do um but I know that you said then that in the email um, that you sent me before this, you, you mentioned that the deal came quite easily for that and for Come Again, your novel, but not the writing. So mm. I know you've, you've just said you, you you felt keen to make that proposal better than it needed to be. Mm. Um, how, how about then when you got the deal and you got writing? How was that? It was, to be honest, in the with the first book, it wasn't too bad. because I think partly because I'd given myself this um uh, roadmap is the horrible word that just came to mind but um yeah I had this plan and um it was hard in in the sense that it was emotionally challenging some of the time because I was even though there's there's a satisfaction to being able to frame these events for example you know as you know my my mum died when I was 17 and and being able to sort of express that in my own words was um I think was cathartic for me although I'm I'm always slightly shy of uh of admitting that because it sounds like I uh, it sounds like the, the book is like for my benefit rather than because the whole the whole tone of the book hopefully is that it's it's quite open and it's out to, to reach out to other people to particularly when you've lost someone that what you really need to hear is that you're not alone and and uh that we've all gone through these we've all lost someone so it, it, it was Good for me. I've completely lost my thread now. <laughs> we're you were about... saying that it, I think you were saying that it was cathartic, but yes. not that wasn't your primary goal. But nonetheless, no. it, it was emotionally challenging to write. Yes, that's right. It was, emotionally, that. it was emotionally challenging. <laughs> so yeah, so we were dealing with some quite, and you know, my you know, my relationship with my dad, and 
and uh and what i've been like with women and and uh, stuff around alcohol stuff around suicidal thoughts depression there are, there are various sort of hot topics in the in the book to put it glibly and uh so it was it was uh, challenging to write it should also be added i was still and this is also true of come again which i found much harder to write that I was still drinking quite a lot while I was writing these two books. Now that's not mm. to say that I was sort of staggering around and, uh, and you should, uh, uh, and I, I don't want people to think, but th this is the work of a drunkard. I'm not reading this anymore. It was all quite <laughs> carefully done in the end. It was all quite carefully edited uh, and uh, carefully put together and, and approached with great seriousness. But the, the truth is also, you know, during those first drafts of both books, uh, if I tried to get behind a wheel of a car, I'd be rightly, arrested and i think that's that's part that might be partly why uh in my head i'm finding it harder to to write now but for reasons that i'm sure we'll get to i don't drink anymore uh, mm. and i certainly you know i i really don't think there's a there's a thing called i, I can't get it uh remember if it's permission beliefs or belief permissions it's one or the other but uh, things that addicts tell each tell themselves in order to justify their addiction and i think there was a time when I thought that um, that alcohol helped me to write. I think I, right. I believed that, or it was convenient for me to believe yes. that uh, that it, it made my mind more lateral and that I could make leaps that yeah. I wouldn't otherwise. I make. think that's quite but, a common um, feeling, not justified, but you know, write write drunk, edit sober, isn't that the Hemingway? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's not. I mean, you know, everyone's different, but I think in my case, it's absolute nonsense, and it and it's certainly. Yeah slowed me down I certainly know that if I if I've been drinking a lot and I came I came to look at what I've been doing yesterday you could quite reliably uh, just delete the last four six hundred words because not oh. because they'll be gibberish or suddenly very angry or bitter but the jokes would stop uh I just get tired and then I would I just oh. stop being funny now because being funny is harder than being um solemn uh, so that's yes that's that so interesting and I and I actually wanted to ask you about that because both books I would say are are really funny but you know not in a not in a peep show way not yeah. in a comedy on the radio or the tv way because they have to exist in in an entirely different format in the format of you know an edited line an edited paragraph an edited narrative arc which not to say that your tv shows and your radio shows don't have yeah. those but it's just yeah. different i think it is different it is um different. And and you, i always i always take it with a pinch of salt when you read on the back cover of, of something don't read this on the train otherwise unless you want to be seen guffawing like an idiot you're gonna go this, this book isn't gonna make you guffaw like an idiot not in the <laughs> same way that brass eye is or the peep show is you know it's it's right. just a different thing it's a sort of julian barnes level of funny which is funny but it's not it's not funny in the same way you know not no disrespect <laughs> to mr barnes but you know what I mean. I do uh, know what a, you mean. There's only and... so far. There's only so far that that, that form can can take you. But um, was but, it yeah, difficult you. for you to to sort of write in that different format and either, as you say, you know, notice that life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry. And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Writing comedy was harder than, than not doing it. Or was it, was it difficult to tone that down in some way to accommodate this new format um it's the great pleasure of it is that it's it appeals to the egomaniac in me because uh, or the control freak if you like because you get to do all the jobs I mean compared to if you're writing a script then you're handing it over to an actor assuming the actor isn't you but you're you're handing it over to other actors uh, and you're also there's a there will be all these talented people who and it's brilliant when you're in that collaborative mood and you're in that collaborative form uh and there'll be the director and the producer will put certain constraints on it and the budget obviously and the you know uh you're not necessarily in charge of what people are wearing or how we or how it's edited or what we're listening to or any of that stuff and suddenly you come to write a novel and you're doing everything you it, it's you're you're in charge of where the camera is, if you like, and you're in charge of, you know, how people look and how people sound. And of course you hand over that control to the reader and that somehow that's, that's absolutely fine. I don't mind giving the reader that control because, you know, they will do the voices in their own heads and I have absolutely no control over that. And that's fine. Whereas when you give it to another actor and they do it and then, and they do it wrong, um, then you then there's, <laughs> then there's nothing you just have to pretend that that's that you're okay with that even though you're you're sort of you know privately jumping on this is why I would be a terrible director and I mustn't be allowed to direct anything because I would just want to act everything for, noted for want, posterity I just want to walk up to the actors and do it for them and go no obviously not like that love so um so it's good for me um that, but isn't it easier the... as well for self-doubt to creep in when you don't have that collaboration and particularly for somebody who'd been working so closely with someone else for so long suddenly yes. you're in a room by yourself or or I think it was the garden where you did a lot of your writing and drinking I did a right? lot of the garden a lot of writing in the garden because I was smoking as well as everything else mm. yeah with David it's there was a sort of safety in numbers thing in that if uh, if one of us found something funny, then okay, it might be funny. If both of us found it funny, yes, it's it, we're we're going to write that. If neither of us find it funny, then obviously we're not going to do it. So it was uh, so there was a sort of there was a, a kind of safety net there, and we were honest with each other without being without being dismissive or rude. We, I mean, we played really nicely. I mean, I, that was the only way that we could, you know, work together so closely for so long. It was a very very polite relationship <laughs> and I you know I wish I I treated there are ex-girlfriends that I should have treated with that much respect and it, it would have been it would have been a, a better time for everyone um so I mean not that we didn't we never fell out exactly we would have differences but you know they would they would be dealt with with uh, there would be the odd tetchy silence followed by icy English courtesy 
sort of uh, picking up the pieces and then we'd we we'd feel better about it a bit later so there was that aspect so when it when you come to do it on your own on the one hand yes uh, you don't have that backup voice on the other hand to be honest having worked with david for so long it was just this luxury that i've never quite got over yet of being able to really take your time and look if i want to spend 10 minutes deciding where this comma goes i'm allowed and nobody you know i'm not wasting anyone's time not that he was constantly tapping his foot but it, but like i say the top the clock was ticking when we were together writing side by side and you just didn't want to lean back on your chair and stare out of the window and really really take your time about this there was a sort of inbuilt review efficiency uh, in that script writing system that just wasn't relevant by the time you come to doing a novel. I mean, I couldn't write a novel with him. I mean, that that doesn't tend to happen anyway. But um, I, I'm still sort of luxuriating in being able to take my time and 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 being completely in charge and not having to negotiate with anyone. You lose everyone else's talented uh, input, but you gain a sort of unity a kind of it, this is definitely my thing I'm going to take all the credit and I'm going to take all the blame and it's yes. kind of exciting like that as a journalist I have a similar relationship with writing when I've when I've written fiction and compared with journalism where, where I sort of love the autonomy but hate it equally yeah <laughs> I think so so how did you find writing a novel after all that? Because the memoir was very successful. It was a bestseller. It was highly praised and so on. And then you had the novel as part of the same deal. Was it yes. already on? Okay. And so, so how were you feeling for, about that? So the idea for Come Again actually preceded uh, the idea for the memoir. Um, it was an idea I'd had ooh, about five years previously. Um, and I remember exactly how it happened I was just sitting in uh I was filming Peep Show and I was sitting in Jeremy's car uh, and they were re-rigging the lights and there was just a bit of a pause and I was on the on my phone and it was on social media and somebody a director I just worked with said okay I've just finished that project has anyone got any great ideas um for a story and I just remember staring out of the front windscreen and unfocusing my eyes and this idea uh just fell into my lap and it basically ruined me because I've been, I've, you know, <laughs> Come Again came out three years ago and I've, I've spent three years chasing that experience. <laughs> and it's taken me a very, very long time to work out that it's probably never going to happen like that again. Yeah, middle-aged widow travels back in time, meets future dead husband. He's not the man that she lost. He's the annoying English student that she first met. What do you do? So, I mean, that it was right there. And I kind of wrote that down. And then I sort of did nothing with it. And then when it came to, you know, pitching the memoir, uh, it was suggested to me that if you've got an idea for a novel in your back pocket, then this might be the time to, you know, tag it onto the uh, onto the proposal just to make them think that you might be a proper writer in, in some way. So there was this 50-page document for uh, How Not To Be A Boy and this half a page, this three paragraphs uh, of of come again sort of tagged on and on the basis of that they all offered uh, well the, the the people who offered offered a offered a two book deal so um so i came to i came to come again and it, and again there's a huge difference between starting the memoir and starting this and that i'd given uh, i'd written you know i'd half written the book by the time i came to actually do it the first time around and this time i just had this half a page 
And so it was really terrifying. And I think I went about, uh, I sort of I sort of knew that I wanted there to be sort of three sections. I knew there had to be a present day thing where she's in trouble. So she's we meet Kate and she's in terrible grief and she's not getting better and she's stuck in the past. And then magically uh, she wakes up. It's 1992. This is the week. In fact, this is the day that she met Luke, her, uh, her husband, for the first time. Uh, what is she going to do? And then I knew that she had to learn something in the past and bring that new knowledge back into the present and learn, basically, basically learning to, it's about, if it's about anything, it's about learning to live in, in the present. I say this in the full knowledge that it, it is a sort of rom-com thriller uh, adventure that ends <laughs> in a car chase and a punch-up. So let's not get too carried away with its thematic <laughs> seriousness. But um, if it's, if it's it about is... anything, it's it's about I... that movement from from grief into mourning, from from um, being stuck in the past to understanding that you that the new present has something to say for itself. Yeah, I actually think you weave together all those serious thematic concerns uh, <laughs> really, really cleverly, because there are bits where it hops about um, yeah. that that quite hooky premise that was your initial thought oh. is played with quite a lot. I mean, there are three you know discernible sections to the book. And I imagine that took quite a bit of drafting to get to get those yeah. three things to work together. I, I, mean, I don't want to say too much about what they are because I feel like a lot of the joy is in the surprise of them. But um, yeah, I, I, I had a fairly good idea early on what needed to happen in the middle. And I and I had a slightly vaguer but some idea of how I wanted it to end. I knew I'm very happy to say this is not a spoiler that the, the, the dead guy is not going to come back to life. I knew that, that if anybody comes back to life, it's Kate. It's about, mm -hmm. it's about our heroine um, coming back to life. So I knew yeah. I had, I had to find a, a satisfying ending that didn't cheat in that way. So I had these sort of three lampposts and it was kind of a way, it was a question of looping between them. And sometimes that was terrifying and sometimes it was really exciting. So I knew, for example, I knew that I had to get her out of the house and she, I've got her walking along the street and and she goes into a bookshop and the, the sort of critic in my head is saying, well, why is she going into a bookshop? What's she going to do in the bookshop? And the, the sort of writer voice is saying, can you just sh sh shut up? She's <laughs> gone into the bookshop. Like, I don't know why she's going into the bookshop. Let her go into the bookshop. And so, you know, she she picks up a thematically relevant book and she meets an interesting, I hope, and funny character that she's friends with and they have a disagreement and that tells us something about her state of mind and she leaves and she's in a different state when she leaves than, than she was when she went in and it turned out to be a very useful scene. So I was so sometimes you kind of go, the critic needs to shut up so that the artist, if you like, can can do their thing. Um, and so moments like that were exciting and you get little and the more times that happens, you you gain these little incremental feelings of confidence that you that it's OK to just let your pen do, go for a wander and you're not going to end up down a blind alley. And if you do, that's OK. No one's going to die. It's fine. You, you can just uh, start again from where, where it last made sense. So it sometimes it was. I panicked and sometimes I just got a hold of myself and just let let the um whatever it is guide me the music was, 
Was it how you thought it would be having um, coming full circle, as you said at the beginning? Yeah. Was it how you thought it would be after thinking of, of writing a story for so long and having had the idea of Come Again in your head for quite a long time? Was it everything it was, you expected? It was harder. It was harder and it was slower. There's no doubt about that. It was certainly harder and slower than the memoir. And I think it was, I think, I mean, the joy for it, the joy of it for me is always in the style and in the, in the nitty gritty of the sentences. I, I love it. You know, you, you write something and you need to get rid of this unintentional rhyme and you need to rearrange this syntax so that the rhythm is nicer for the reader and you need to get, get all of the stuff that is going to distract the reader out of the way uh, or this joke is in the wrong place, it needs to be moved or it needs to be turned up to 11 to make it work properly or, uh, or whatever. And so all of that stuff, the nitty gritty, uh, of just removing those ruffles, the things that, that that will stop the reader enjoying it because they're worried about something. Because you've, I think it was Hitchcock that said a, a confused audience does not emote and he's trying to scare them. Most of the time I'm trying to make them laugh uh, and they won't laugh if, if they're confused about something. So all of that work is what I really enjoy and ent entertaining the audience and sometimes hopefully touching them as well. Uh, if it's, you know, in, in the case of Come Again, there, it is quite a griefy, but if, you know, if grief turns out to be my subject, then that's just what I'm stuck with. And there we are. But, um, you know, that that's what I'm up to. Uh, whereas the plot and structure and storytelling is at the moment, it kind of feels like it, this kind of necessary evil that you have to. I mean, you know, I, I thought the, the hook as you the, the hooky premise, uh, I thought that was my idea that I, I I sort of thought I'd done the storytelling because I'd come up with that idea and I went oh that's fine I've got a story and of course you, that isn't the story at all that's the beginning of a story and I had a lot of work uh to do so it's it's kind of integrating the the storytelling with the enjoyment of the sentence to sentence-ness uh that I that's what I've got to what I've got to work on and what I hope to improve on basically. Yes. Well, I want to ask you about your your new book in just a sec. But before we move on to that, I just want to mention a particular bit of Come Again, which is it is very funny and very good. And there's one bit where Kate, as you say, is, is back in the past meeting her in the present dead husband, Luke, for the very first time in Freshers Week, which, by the way, will make anyone who's been to university want to return there and also definitely not in equal measure. <laughs> I think. And anyway, she meets this Luke. And he's he's written a book. And he wants her to he wants her to read it and comment on it, and it's so bad. And I was just gonna <laughs> I was just gonna read a wee bit. I mean, she says it's so bad. I hope I'm not like saying that you've written something that's really bad here that wasn't meant to be. But no, she's um. I'll just read you a little bit. The sky high heels of Jessica Jed tick across the asphalt, transporting the pneumatic breasts of their mistress and telling their own story as the multi-storied roof shimmers in the heat blur like a slab of sorbet grateful to melt. Her mind is empty, light as a plastic turd, empty like this car park roof, proof positive that Gary Disposal has made the grade. Oh, he's chosen the place to meet all right, He'd abused the sheets of his fetid bed. They reeked, but he'd hung up the mouth can, exulted. She'd agreed. I, I read this and I read it over a few times because I knew it was kind of intentionally bad and that's the joke. But I was also like, I was sort of trying to unpick it. And I was quite fascinated by 
how you'd written the bad writing and whether you'd had a lot of fun with that and gone over it many times. Yes. And also whether these were your own concerns, this sort of, um, because it's very overwritten, it's Mm. not in that particular passage, but it's riddled with these sort of kind of random dead end literary references intended to make him look uber intellectual. It's just, yeah. And I just, I I wondered if you could comment on how it was writing, writing that wee bit. it's funny. It's uh, I, I read uh, a while ago John Cleese saying that your your sitcom monster is you minus your sense of humour, and you can kind of see that in Basil Fawlty, and you can see it in Partridge, and uh, and, and I think this is uh, this is the kind of writer that I I could have been if I'd uh, <laughs> if I'd been a different sort of person. It's it's partly I think it's Luke's I think it's Luke under the heavy influence of early Martin Amis is what yeah. it is yeah. and it's it's a it's a stupid person's idea of what uh of of what good writing is that it all it all has these <laughs> little uh rhymes and these kind of references and and of course the unexamined sexism of it uh jessica zed uh her mind is empty and uh, we we hear about her breasts and all of that i mean i'm not i i really like martin amos but this is this is a sort of bad pastiche uh, as written by someone who doesn't know what they're doing yes yeah. i did have a lot of fun writing it and yes i did spend probably more time on those two paragraphs than i did on the surrounding chapter um, <laughs> yeah and when you're writing do you worry about do you worry about things like overwriting or if you are, as you are very well read, it seems to me, do you worry about being unduly influenced by the things that you love and sort of putting them in, in a sort of, like you say, a sort of homage or pastiche or. Well, I've, I've carried uh, the English, English student guilt about never being well read enough. I mean, I just, you know, just constantly starting books that I think I ought to, I'm, I've just turned 50 and I, I've only just got through the, got over the habit of not finishing books that I've started. I, I now can open a book in the knowledge that I don't have to finish it. It's fine, which is great because it means I can open books that, that I really might not finish and just enjoy the first 40 pay. I'm reading Hilary Mantel's uh, A Place of Greater Safety. It's an 800 page mm. novel. I very much doubt I'm going to get to the end of it, but that it's in a way that's great because I'm enjoying it. I haven't stopped yet. I might well read it. Um, <laughs> I think I'm more likely to read it since I've given myself permission not to, if that makes any sense. Yes, um, so yeah. in terms of overwriting things, I feel, I think I've, I feel quite strongly that if if a sentence is drawing attention to itself, um, then it's probably getting in the way of the story. So uh, so I, I keep an eye on that. I, I try to only show off deliberately. If I'm showing off, uh, then it needs to be serving a purpose. Yeah, the rest of the time, I'm, I'm trying to put all of my whatever I've got, uh, talent or hard work or luck or whatever is going on, into just making things easy for the reader so in their different ways I think come again and uh, how not to be a boy are are quite complicated but I, I take pride in making them extremely easy to read you can knock these books off in a couple of hours um, and I you know people say that they have and I, I quietly I, I get mixed feelings about that because on the one hand great because I went out of my way to make this extremely accessible and on the other hand you've probably missed quite a lot of stuff would you mind reading it again please <laughs> so, well I uh, have I've actually read your memoir three times oh, um, but, but I did but I did read it quite quickly the first time because it yeah, is very it, good well, it, that's what it begs um, it begs to be uh, read quickly because um yeah 
<laughs> but, no, there's, just, but there's no, a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, just going back to that idea of ego, I do want to talk about your second novel in a second, but just very quickly, I don't think we've stressed in this interview so far that you actually had quite a difficult childhood, which is something that your memoir goes into a lot. And we mentioned that your mother died when you were 17, and I'm very sorry about that. You might write very movingly about it in the memoir. And you, I'm paraphrasing, but correct me if this is wrong, I think you felt slightly at odds with the kind of mass, very masculine culture that you were growing up in. Your brothers yeah. were quite a bit sort of burlier than you and you yeah. <clears throat> were quite into imaginative play and had yeah. these sort of imaginary friends and um you know I think you you were sort of creative and, and not particularly quote masculine in yeah. a world they expected those things expected different yeah. things of you I just wanted to ask because I found it interesting that you had this ego then when you went to university or after you left it mm. I wanted to ask whether whether you think that if you had had a different childhood, you might not have become a writer in, in any of the myriad forms that you are now. Yeah, I mean, if, I, if I'd had a different childhood, I'd be a completely different person for, for, the, for exactly that reason. So it's it's always a difficult um, counterfactual, isn't it? I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, you do, you do. It's almost a cliche now, isn't it? That, uh, that people with well-rounded and happy childhoods don't become writers. <laughs> um so I yes I I think that must be that must be there. I mean it's an odd thing for someone who's written a memoir to say, but I haven't really inspected that too closely. I mean I, I I've certainly thought about um, my childhood, and a lot of it was very happy, but it was it was also quite solitary. Um, so my my brothers were were six uh, sorry five and six years older than me. And so we didn't really play together. So, you know, when you were 11, you wouldn't give the time of day to a five-year-old. So I did spend a lot of time on my own. Yes, doing imaginative play, riding around on my bike, pretending to be uh, Zorro or Steve Austin or the wisecracking uh, cops in Chips. And um, uh, and I think that probably almost certainly has has made a difference in terms of, uh, yeah, the way my the way my brain developed I suppose and 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 the, and the place that imagination has in my in my life I suppose you know writers are just people who who take their daydreams a bit more seriously than other people and bother to write them down and um uh and that's um yeah if, if, if you if you have a childhood where you you never lean back on your chair and stare out the window and just get lost in uh, in a in a sort of thought of a daydream of of whatever it might be then um you're not likely to be a writer yeah I, I, I'd certainly say that's that made all the difference yeah and I also think the way you've just put it just thinking about my own children really you don't necessarily have to superimpose um tragedy or even no. um or even you know solitary solitude in the way that you've just described to create that room for daydreaming you know boredom mm. and time for daydreaming is so important for children yeah. I think yeah, I mean, there was probably. I mean, I'd be interested to see studies in about you know phones and tablets and uh, you know th there's a part there's a 20th century part of me that thinks when do they hang on when do they get bored though when do they get to I suppose when they're dropping off to sleep but that that's kind of you know we've got these devices that just rush in and fill that fill that gap now but you know that's that's what I'm saying there won't be any more writers now. We've had all our writers, ladies and gentlemen, and now there won't be, because of the iPhone, there won't be any more writers now. Yeah. So just enjoy the ones that were born before 1980. 
<laughs> You're the last one, Rob. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the new novel. <laughs> you keep saying the new novel is kind of well. Like, well, you mentioned kind of spooking me. There sorry, <laughs> you mentioned it. You mentioned it a few times here. You mentioned it in the email, and you've said that you're writing this one sober. Tell mm. me a little bit about that and how it's going. Well, it's not. It's not going. I, mean, I, I might have. You, I might have um, overstated this in the email. There is a. There's a folder on this uh, de- desktop that I can. Uh, I'm looking at now. Optimistically called Book Three. It is quite empty. Uh, there is. Um, there is a, a notes app on my phone that I write in uh, several times a day. Uh, ideas for lines. Ideas for characters. Ideas for situations ideas for i mean all kinds of things and if i if i printed that file out now it would probably run to 20 or 30 pages of a4 i mean it's a it's a weird you know i don't even read it it's you know at some point i will have to do that and then maybe cut all the little bits out and stick them in a <laughs> stick them in some sort of collage and see what jumps out at me uh and i have i have sort of uh, there is an idea which I'm circling, um, but it's without drastically wishing to lower the stakes of this podcast. Uh, I, it, I'm not that. It, I don't feel it that urgently. The need to to make a start. I mean, the fact that it's taken me three years. Um, so the first, the first year. I mean, I had to have heart surgery. And then it was locked down. So that's a those are reasons. There's a couple of good excuses for the first year. So I, I get the first year free, okay. But then since then, there have been two years where I, uh, I can't help noticing I have not started a a, a new uh, novel, and it's um. On the one hand, it it bothers me because I think I do have something to offer, and I I would feel better if I was offering it, and I, you know. Uh, I sort of feel I'm, I'm I'm selling myself a bit short there. On the other hand, uh, having had this experience with uh, with the this diagnosis that I had, uh, I had a uh, my mitral valve, one of the valves in my heart wasn't working properly, and uh, I got really quite close to my heart just failing, uh, according to cardiologists, and said, "You're not going to have a heart attack in the next fortnight, but if we don't fix this in the next few months, this heart will fail." I read uh, that. How so- scary. So that was that was quite scary, but it was sort of immediately reassuring as well because the same man was there to say, "We do this all the time. Uh, we know. I, I know who's going to operate on you. I know how it's going to work. It's going to be fine." And it was fine. But the information that I was given afterwards, which was that at some point the, the operation was supposed to happen on a Friday, and at some point there was a problem with the ICU beds, and so the surgeon wanted to delay it till Monday. And then the cardiologist said to him, well, you could send him home for the weekend, but I wouldn't expect to see him back on Monday because I don't think he's going to last that long. Oh so my that's, God. that's information which fortunately I didn't hear at the time. But it, it turns out, you know, it, not wishing to be overly melodramatic, I'm kind of supposed to be dead. So if if I don't, if I end up not being in a massive rush to to write my second novel... I'm, I think that's reasonably understandable. I mean, some people with that information, they would go completely the other way and they would become very productive and they would get all carpe diem about it. Whereas I, I was listening to Martin, um, not Martin, I was listening to uh, another writing podcast. It was um, Ian McEwen talking to Sam Leith and he was talking about uh, his parents' generation and how they'd, you know, they fought the Second World War and then they came home and suddenly they had a serious interest in mowing the lawn and 
collecting stamps. And I, that made me smile because it, not that I've had to do anything as heroic as defeat the Nazis, but uh, but my body certainly went through this extraordinary trauma, this sort of seven hour thing where it was on bypass and you come back and you're not quite, they can't really tell you what that's going to do to your mood and your sleep and your resilience and your immunity and your memory. And you, you come back a bit wonky and a bit sort of reshuffled and you recover from that. But but that's it's there and and so i've taken quite an interest in in basically having a quiet life with the odd mad overcompensation like saying yes to strictly but with that with that wildly misfiring <laughs> uh <laughs> thing aside generally uh i i'm very happy getting through the day you know reading and going for a run and uh, doing the shopping and cooking tea and just doing that kind of stuff and so I, I really really want to write some more novels and it's irritating to me that I haven't started for a, for a while but there again there's no enormous sense of urgency because um, I'm kind of happy noodling around at the moment. I actually think that's lovely to hear not the heart bypass stuff but yeah. um, <laughs> the idea of a lack of urgency which I think is often when people skirt around that idea I think it, it sometimes is misinterpreted as people being lazy and actually mm-hmm. urgency can be quite oppressive in writing and yeah. can stop good work because people are trying to get it out too quickly and yeah. I think that's I think that's really comforting to hear yeah I mean there'll be people listening to this thinking what he really needs is a deadline and um and I would I would sympathize with that point of view it feels to me like I don't I just don't want to go back into this unless I've I've got a much better idea of where I'm going than I than I do at the moment and I I think I'd like to as with the first book um you know get a get a long way into it before I, I before I showed it to anyone and I let anybody give me any money for it because I, I just want to I sort of want to do it on my own terms this time before um, before I have to worry about um, you know uh, when it when it's got to be written by. So um, there is an idea, and I do like it, uh, and it's just a question of finding finding the moment to just uh, be brave and start writing. It, it's it's funny because it's it, it, this time it's going to be like most people. Like I said, that you know the premise for Come Again spoiled me. Uh, and I, you know, this time I'm going to have to do it like like a proper writer, which is to, you know, you write the first draft that you're not very happy with, and you or you, you know, and you write with a sense of you have to live with the uncertainty um, that I don't I don't know whether this is a particularly good idea. I definitely knew last time it was a good idea, so it's it's just um, having the humility to live with that uh, with that. Uh, you know, not knowing if it's any good. <laughs> yes, because a novel is such a long game compared with some other creative endeavours. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks and see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 